Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, July 10th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero, and I hope that all our listeners out there got their wiggle-waggle dancing shoes on, because this week we're talking about the pygmy sunfishes. Awesome. And I'm really happy to introduce two guests from Mississippi State University, David Pounders and Mike Sandell. So thanks for joining us. We're super excited to learn from both of you today about this fish. Glad to be here. Very glad to be here as well. Okay, so sunfish is a broad term. We've talked about sunfishes before on the show. Most recently, the bluegill, which is a really popular species in the freshwater Lepomis genus. We've also talked about the ocean sunfishes, which are likewise very charismatic, very different than the freshwater varieties. Where exactly do the pygmy sunfishes fall on the fish family tree? Well, that's a really fun question because <laughs> for over a century, researchers had not found the answer to this question. The fish are very small. And that's the first thing you notice about a pygmy sunfish is, you know, they only grow to be an inch and a half long, maybe maybe a little longer for some species. And because of their very small size, it makes it difficult to find the morphological features that you normally find in a larger fish that are much easier to observe. What they've gone through is a miniaturization and they've lost some of the bones and some of the other characteristics that we would use typically to find the relationships between groups of fishes. So it's just absent. Hmm. So there were lots of ideas because we had all this missing information about what they're related to. And it's really fun that Guy mentioned their wiggle waggle dance, which has some similarity to the dances that another group of fish puts on. And because there were no morphological traits that we could use to find out where these fish belong, we started looking at their behavior. And (laughs) the going hypothesis for a long time was that these fish were related to sticklebacks because they had similar dances. Um, They've also been associated with things like swamp eels, also the mullets, which is a saltwater group. These are a very weird group of fishes that don't look anything like each other. Hmm. In 1993, they were united by a single bone behind the skull that they all shared in common. And so that was the best information we had at that time all the way, you know, through the 90s was that there was this oddball group of fishes that shared this one bone behind the skull. Since then, we started doing genetic research and everything has changed. I mean, not just with pygmy sunfishes, but with the fish tree of life in general. And there's much more robust data in the genetic information compared to the morphology. Um, What the genetics have told us is that pygmy sunfishes are pygmy sunfishes. So they do belong (laughs) closely related to the bluegill and the the other things, you know, that are found in the same area, the the basses and the crappies and that sort of thing. Okay. That makes sense. It's basically like we have all these fingers now and trying to trace them back to the hand and trying to figure out what order they're in. Should I be using Elasimatidae? Oh, boy. Or Centrarchidae? That's a... <laughs> you would be surprised at how many the uh, <laughs> fish scientists have gotten into heated arguments about this one. Y'all are the experts. You tell me I'll, I'll abide by whatever decision you make. And this is the fish family for folks listening. Yeah, yeah. 
All these guys are within genus Elasoma. Am I saying that right? Elasoma? It goes both Elasoma? ways. Yeah, I hear it both. Okay. It's Latin, so it's a dead language. You can say it however you want. <laughs> the current taxonomy has the genus Elasoma within the family Centrarchidae. The new book that's coming out on North American fish diversity, it's within a subfamily called Elasomonae. So instead of the D, okay. there's an N there. And whether you recognize that or not is, again, up for debate, but... If you consider them within centrarchids, they are the most distinct lineage of centrarchids by a long shot. They are quite different mm -hmm. from other sunfishes and basses genetically. Very, very beautiful fish. So the males will get these really bright coloration. And underneath the eye, you can see the bar there. But also their dorsal, anal fins, pectoral fins, they'll all light up along with their bodies. A lot of the individuals, such as like... A, Everglades pygmy sunfish, Gulf Coast pygmy sunfish, they will get this electric blue coloration to them. Mm -hmm. And that aids in bringing the female in because the more colorful and vibrant you are, the more that the ladies are going to like you. <laughs> and, and along with the wiggle waggle dance, and you got those bright colors going, you got a much better chance to reproduce. Awesome. Yeah, they're gorgeous. So what's life like for a pygmy sunfish? Say we're in one of these springs. It's got good submergent aquatic vegetation. What are we doing? Where are we living in the water column? What are we eating? And when it comes time to make babies, I don't know how old they are when that goes on. Uh, what are they trying to do to attract a mate and uh, make sure that their eggs survive to create the next generation? Yep. The average lifespan for a pygmy sunfish is one year. Oh, so wow. Not very long. Very ephemeral. Yeah, very, very. Okay, occasionally they can live longer, but it's not seen too often. So uh, probably your mm -hmm. more aggressive males, which tend to be larger sometimes, and not always, though, so it's going to be what brings your females in. Mm -hmm. Because the pygmy sunfish, along with others, the male guards the nest. So once they reproduce, you'll basically almost come like bass or other sunfish bluegill, Instead of having a bed of gravel, they need that vegetation to guard and cover their eggs. And it makes it easier to protect and they're hidden at the same time. So you got the wiggle waggle dance to wiggle, attract mates. Dance. And then what is the actual way that these males are defending their nest? Like, how do they do that? I heard there's like a sliding threat thing that they do when other males come in. <laughs> we want to see, I know this is audio, but we want to see somebody do the dance. I don't know. Yeah, if yeah. Well, we haven't described what the like, dance actually is. We've just given it the name. <laughs> Like an interpretive with my hands yes. or like stand up? <laughs> yeah, because well, I, yeah. I don't know. Just for our I... own enjoyment. No. <laughs> Katrina can give a play by play while you're doing it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I should have rehearsed the dance before this. <laughs> like, I've seen some videos. It's almost like you got a car and all the doors are like in the hood are operating <laughs> just independent of one another, just flapping open like it got possessed by a demon or something. That's yeah. what I've like seen. Is that right? Like are they going can. up and down the stalks? What's going on here? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, to describe it, the head goes up and down, alternating with the tail, right? And then they're going side to side. And it looks like they should be moving because of all this action that's taking place, but they're actually not moving within the water column. They're just going up and down and their body is moving side to side. It's as much motion as you can imagine without going anywhere. The part that keeps people wanting to keep them in aquaria is that they include those fins that David mentioned in that dance. So the at the same time the animal is going up and down and side to side, those fins are flashing and they have that iridescent blue coloration on the fins. That's caused by a compound called guanine 
And the guanine forms crystals that reflect that blue light. So they're mm-hmm. actually using their fins by opening and closing them quickly as a way of communicating, in most cases, with females. So the, the, everything in their environment looks kind of black and brown and red. And then all of a sudden, a female is swimming through this vegetation and sees these flashes of blue, which is very uncommon, right? So that's something that the female can cue in on as, oh, this is a mate because I don't see this blue color very often. And when you talk about dark colors, that's from like tannins, not from sediment and stuff, because we were talking about the clear waters earlier, right? Correct. Yeah. The water is very clear in terms of like physical material, but it's like tea or coffee. In fact, some of the people that keep the fish in aquariums will put a tea bag in the fish tank to try to take that that color. Interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. All right. So yeah, so say I'm a pygmy sunfish male, I'm in my nest, like how big is my area I'm defending and what am I going to do if something comes in? Like <laughs> the nest size is going to be absolutely tiny. Um, so, yeah, less than a cubic foot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's been a little bit of research on the motions that go into this wiggle waggle dance. It, it, some parts of it, like the sliding threat, are quite similar to their feeding behavior. So <laughs> you see a transition <clears throat> from... You know, most fish are swimming with their tails primarily to get from one place to another. The pygmy sunfish change to moving with their pectoral fins. So it's like they're swimming with their fingers instead of their tail. Hmm. They have a very slow stalking kind of motion. And while they're doing that, they're kind of curling up their tail, almost like a rattlesnake would curl up its head. So they're slowly using their hands to creep up on and prey and their tail is kind of bunching up this energy and getting ready to spring the fish forward so that it can catch the food very quickly. This is very similar to how they attempt to intimidate each other when two males are coming up to each other. So they'll slowly kind of stalk each other and then the bigger male usually will spring forward using Mm -hmm. the same kind of behavior as if they're feeding, but it's in this case to chase off another male. Do they actually okay. bite the other fish or is it more they like can a bluff charge? Damage, but most okay. of the time it's bluff. You know, they like okay. most animal competitions. It's not beneficial it's to really get physical. You yeah. got to really be evenly matched before they actually touch each other. Okay. Yeah, thank you. It's my understanding and the checking of the Wikipedia before I jumped on this show that there's seven <laughs> species, but knowing that you're geneticists, what are the species of pygmy sunfishes that we currently know of and where do you find them? Okay. Yeah. So uh, the most widespread individuals is the banded pygmy sunfish. And all these guys are found in the coastal plain within the United States mm-hmm. in mainly the swamp areas or low gradient streams that are heavily vegetated. And then the next most widespread is going to be the Everglades pygmy sunfish. And they're found mm-hmm. from Alabama along the coast all the way to North Carolina. Oh, wow. So not just in the Everglades. Yeah. The description, I guess, when they were initially discovered, they were named Everglades pygmy sunfish. They were found in Florida. But they're pretty widespread. And then we have the Carolina pygmy sunfish, blue boar, Okefenokee, and Gulf Coast. They have mm-hmm. a little bit more limited range. And then most of all, the species with the least range is the spring pygmy sunfish which it only lives in one spot in North Alabama, above the fall line, too. Oh, wow. It's a little confusing because you have 
one member above the fall line and all the other six members are found within the coastal plain. How's that one member doing? So, so they are listed under the yeah. Endangered Species Act as threatened. That's part of my work here is I work on their conservation genetics mm -hmm. and hopefully soon I'll have the results back for the last population. Okay. For where they're found, they're still doing good because all those areas are protected. So there's nothing going on, no human influences or any alteration of the land areas, the critical okay. habitat where these guys have found. But okay. so far we did find there are two distinct populations that are active, genetically distinct. So they're Still same species, but just a little bit more separated within their genetics. And then there's an extirpated population that was also a different genetic uh, lineage as well. Okay. Their their total range is around like five miles. It's the only place that's mm -hmm. found in North Alabama. Okay. It recently extended to probably about seven miles because a new population was discovered in 2015, <laughs> which is great. Okay. Okay. How are the other species doing? Is it a range of some are doing really well and some are more vulnerable or? Yeah. So, so it seems like the individuals with larger ranges, they don't have as many threats going towards those yep. guys because they're so widespread, but it seems like with your more narrow endemic species, they are under conservation concern. I'll chime in too on this one. Yeah. So in general, the pygmy sunfishes are going to like to live in places that have vegetation that's growing below the surface of the water. So you can go to any wetland and you're going to see vegetation, but if the green parts of the vegetation are above the water surface, they're not really providing the energy and the habitat for the crustaceans and the insects to live under the water. So these fish really do best when you see green leaves under the water. And one of the problems with that is that it means that the water has to be clear enough for light to get down into those water levels. So anytime you have a spring system, such as in North Alabama, you've got crystal clear water flowing from the ground, right? And so underwater plants can thrive there. Hopefully you're never going to have mud coming out of the spring head. Anywhere you find those places in the coastal plain, you're likely to find the pygmy sunfish of one kind or another. Anytime that we disturb the landscape, there's a chance that mud and sediment is going to get into the water system. And if it stays there long enough that it kills those plants, you're going to lose these fish. And not just these fish, but there's a lot of other creatures that live in the same groundwater habitats because they're all dependent on that aquatic vegetation. Yeah, good point. A lot of these individuals, like uh, the Everglades big mesette fish, you almost bond them exclusively in blackwater areas. So you'll find them in swamps that have enough light to get to these submersive vegetations. And then you can find them in ditches and even trickle streams. I've caught them before in streams about as wide as my foot that are about an inch deep. Oh, whoa. Which, okay. Uh, that's probably temporary habitat when it rains. But once they go back into the main waters, sometimes they can be harder to find. Versus okay. Gilbert Eye, the Gulf Coast pygmy sunfish, they're found almost exclusively in springs okay can these guys tolerate any kind of salinity or acidity or anything like that not really no really it's the the fungalist and their relatives that dominate once you get any type of salinity in the water the other thing that happens is you lose that green underwater vegetation when you yeah. get into salt water even if a pygmy sunfish could make its way there it would have a really hard time competing with things like pupfish and killifish and all those things that are 
a much higher metabolic rate mm-hmm. and more aggressive. Gotcha. Gotcha. Real quick, you mentioned all these different techniques, looking at the morphology, looking at the behavior, trying to figure out how all the, it's basically like you're tracing back. We have all these fingers now and trying to trace them back to the hand and trying to figure out what order they're in. And you mentioned that now you're looking at genetic work, but what does that really mean? People, a lot of times they just say, oh yeah, we look at the genetics and it's sort of this black box of, oh, we, we ran some stuff, we took a fin clip, got the DNA, and then it tells us how they're related. But what's actually going on behind the scenes? What does it mean to look at the genetics? Sure, yeah. So I think most people are familiar with the idea that our genome is a string of letters. The symbols that we use to represent DNA are A, C, G, and T. And that genome sequence is unique to every individual. And of course, within a family, we're going to see a lot more similarity in that sequence. And at the you know simplest level, you could literally take the genome and string it out and put it next to another genome and just count how many times the letters are identical and how many times they're different. And that gives you some estimate of genetic distance or maybe the time since they had a common ancestor. So that's at its core what all of these algorithms are doing. So you're just looking at those differences and the fewer there are, the more likely something is to be related. And so by getting enough individuals within a species, you can kind of average that out and figure out where things fall. Exactly, exactly. Perfect, okay. And that's what's so surprising is that we have found similarities in DNA among fish groups that don't look anything like each other. We're finding that seahorses, for example, are related to, you know, things like gobies. And Mm -hmm. there are flatfishes, the flounders, that are related to these big pelagic fishes like swordfish. And morphologists in the 70s and 80s, they would have laughed at us for coming up with these ideas because (laughs) the DNA is just telling us crazy things. But what that really means is that we're uncovering groups of fishes that are evolving really quickly. Guy and I were chatting a little ahead of this about microfishing and nanofishes in aquariums and wondering if either or both of you could just kind of give us a sense of where these fish fall on both of those spectrums. Yeah. If you know. As far as microfishing... I've never done it myself, like on purpose at least, uh, fishing pole. <laughs> For these guys, I don't know how good they would be to microfish. Uh, I would definitely bet you could, but they are pretty popular with native fish keepers. Yep. And especially the more vibrant ones, like your Everglades pygmy sunfish, Gulf Coast pygmy sunfish, Okie Finoki, because they get okay. you know, like the most beautiful, like electric blue, like nuptial colors. One of the challenges that would come up if you're trying to catch these guys is that they really like Daphnia, little tiny mm. and little tiny worms. <laughs> so you imagine trying to put a Daphnia on a hook and you could do very well if you mastered that art of you know <laughs> putting a nematode on a hook. You would catch a lot of pygmy sunfish. Uh, this is one of the mm. challenges of keeping them in aquaria too, is that they just won't eat a goldfish flake that's sinking in the water. They're not going to go for that. They, mm. they need that visual cue and you've got to be a really good fisherman to to imitate that. So. Looking into some of this aquarium stuff, I saw that if you have like, say, two males in a tank, 
you can get a dominant male and then a subdominant male with different colorations, and they can change their colorations quickly depending on which one's dominant and subdominant. Yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit? So, so it's pretty surprising. So, like, they can almost switch to like jet black and electric blue within a few seconds. Oh, well, I didn't know it was that quick. What I've noticed is like <laughs> if you have like one really dominant male in there and he's showing his colors and his dark colorations, and you'll have another male and he's not showing those nuptial colorations, the way I would see it, I guess, is he would be a threat. To that other one. Mm. So, okay. you say nuptial colorations? Yeah. I like that. So, I guess when it comes to aquarium keeping, where are people getting these? Are you getting them from pet stores or are you able to go out and sample them from the wild using means other than rod and reel, like say using a dip net or something? And then once you have them in there, how are you feeding them? What do you feed them? Are you trying to create like a whole ecosystem in the tank? Yeah. So, so there are some people who breed them and they sell them online. And I've noticed even people in Europe have these fish. Oh, really? In aquariums, yeah. Huh. But I keep some Everglades pygmy sunfish because that's uh, another chapter of my thesis I'm working on. I got them to eat bloodworms, which wasn't easy, but I supplement with Daphnia and mm. other little copepods. Some of them will not eat any, like, artificial foods at all. Like, they like to see their prey moving, and, like, they, they like to hunt. So mm. you would have to, like, culture your own zooplankton to feed these guys. Wow. They, they will readily eat mosquito larvae, too. That's another food that I've seen them eat. I'm happy Gosh. to donate some mosquito larvae from up here <laughs> in Alaska, if you like. <laughs> oh, I support them in the eating the mosquitoes. They're pretty yeah. well in the field. Do you have some aquatic vegetation in your tank, too? or I do. Uh, I actually found when uh, working on Everglades pygmy sunfish doing field work in uh, South Alabama in the Panhandle, there's this stuff called bog moss. They seem to really like this vegetation more than any other one in these little small waters. So I have some of that and some java moss in my aquarium, and that's kind of where they gravitate to. Awesome. Yeah. Are there any considerations for folks like looking to collect wild native fishes like this in terms of ID or just, yeah, knowing regulations and status of these fish and things like that? It's always important to check your state laws about how to collect freshwater fishes. So before you ever go out into the wild to collect anything, you want to know which species are protected and how do you identify those species. And if you don't know, then have someone available that is either with you or that you can contact that can help you identify those. Because the last thing you want to do is remove a protected species from the environment and then have someone knocking at your door because you've broken the law. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So mm -hmm. the other rules to think about are like, how big of a net can you use if you're using a dip net or a same net? Different states have different rules and you don't want to be, you know, using a net that's too long, for example, or a trap that's not allowed, something like that. And then in terms of release, I'm guessing if you want to, if you're done with your fish tank and want to be done with the fish. It's never good to release a fish that's been held in captivity. So once you bring fish into your home or into even a tub and in your garden or anything like that, you're exposing that fish to new bacteria, new viruses, new fungi, anything that can cause disease. And when you take a fish from captivity and put it back into the wild, it's bringing all of those microbes with it. And those fish that are in the wild are not prepared for that. That's good advice. Whenever I'm trying to prepare for a show like this, I try and read the latest research that's being done, see what people know about. 
for these guys, it didn't seem like there's been a lot published on the pygmy sunfishes. And so I'm curious how and why you guys have chosen to research these species. Yeah, so uh, I guess one of the issues you run into with research is funding. Mm. Because these fish are not sport fish, so they're not of importance to anglers, really, and they're not food fishes either, you just don't have as many people able to conduct research on them. Like David mentioned, you know, with funding limitations, groups like this really go under the radar for a long time. And that's what I think makes them so fun because, for example, when I was 13, I read a aquarium magazine about these fish and had no idea that there was a fish in North America that was under two inches long and had these brilliant colors. Like I thought those only occurred in the Amazon, mm-hmm. something like, or maybe in the ocean. So there's a lot of groups like this where they just haven't received the attention the sport fish and the food fishes have. And there's a lot of opportunities for people to, you know, conduct a thesis or do some, you know, introductory research and really make big discoveries about things that even the experts don't know yet. Yeah, lots of low-hanging fruit. So like in terms of inspiration, like what was your first kind of introduction to this fish and what inspires you to keep working with them? Well, I didn't always start out as a fish person, but in my undergraduate research, I did a lot of field work doing stream assessments for fish and uh, smaller streams, doing backpack electroshocking mm-hmm. and sanding. And the only one I knew of at first was a spring pygmy sunfish. Because mm-hmm. uh, I remember my professor and advisor at the time was telling me, I was like, yeah, they only live in this one small place and they're threatened. And when you have such small populations like this, it increases the species risk for extinction. And I was like, holy cow. I met Dr. Sindel at a fish conference and he told me he had a mm-hmm. grant for the spring pygmy sunfish. Oh, cool. I like, I would love to work on those guys. So that's, that's cool. kind of my first intro. And it's kind of rough, so I can't just go out all the time and look at them because they are listed and there's a lot of protocols and they are delicate to the touch, hmm. we've learned. Yeah. This reminds me of our, our fungalist discussion that we had on the California killifish a little bit with wetlands and canary in the coal mine and that kind of thing. It seems like, yeah, some of these non-game, non-food fishes can really help us understand larger processes around things like really important things like wetlands. So that's cool. Yeah. Who is funding this research? I might as well ask that. Yeah. David's (laughs) research is funded through a grant that is administered by the Alabama Department of Conservation and Natural Resources. They Mm -hmm. also funded my graduate research. So (laughs) a lot of state agencies are responsible for administering the conservation grants that ultimately come from Fish and Wildlife Service, but a lot of the state agencies are the ones that are making the decisions about who gets to do what. Yep. Wildlife and sport fish restoration. There you go. And when can we look for your thesis? So I should, I will have all my genetics done, hopefully within another month or two. And then next spring, hopefully I will be done writing and working on publications. All right, get out there and read his work. Awesome, good luck with that. Cool, yeah. Any tips for folks interested in conserving these fish from habitat standpoint or helping with funding or anything like that? Certainly, you know, uh, teachers can do wonders, right? Elementary school teachers can get their students out and explore habitats like this pretty easily and maybe make really important discoveries. The kids in these classes can find a fish that might be rare now in their neighborhoods and 
you know, anything we can do to take extra care before we tear down a forest or before we fill in a pond, you know, to have more people taking these things into consideration is going to help the fish. Good advice. You know, particularly in the South and in Florida and in the Southern parts of Georgia and Alabama, the development is happening so quickly. New apartment complexes and even new universities. Uh, these fish that live in the trickle streams that David mentioned are very easily eradicated because they put all the streams into a culvert and then they pave over it. Once you get rid of that light source and create a culvert or bridges and things like this, you lose the habitat and it can be dramatic. Okay. It's like the tide locality where the Everglades pygmy sunfish was originally described from doesn't even exist anymore. I was going to try to get one from my genetic studies, but it's it's all a neighborhood now, and that little water area is not there anymore. But yeah, that's just how things change. And I would say uh, too, like where I come from, I like snakes, but most people don't. So they see that mm-hmm. vegetation, they're like, "Oh no, snakes are going to get in here," so they'll clear it out or put herbicides out, which that vegetation has probably always been in that spring and is always necessary for these habitats. And not just pygmy sunfish, but in other areas, there's other fish that use it, like Tuscumbia darters or skull bins or flame shoves. Yeah, take care of that vegetation. That's a good point, too. We'll have to have y'all back in like 10 years and check on the the family situation of this fish. Cool. Well, really appreciate you two coming on. This has been fascinating. And I've had a thank good time. You again. Thanks it. for having us. This is yeah. great. Yeah. I enjoy talking about the fish I work on. So. Get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the pygmy sunfishes. We'll do it. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. You can catch this fish on Skyrim. You can catch this fish on Skyrim? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What? Look at it. It's a weird. I, I, then it took me to like look at it, the list of which fish you can catch on Skyrim. And it's a weird assortment. It's like you can catch a spade fish, a tripod spider fish. You can catch a pygmy sunfish. Then there's what more common that? ones. Goldfish, cod, Arctic grayling, <laughs> and Arctic char, carp. Huh. But you, you pull it out when you catch it. It's got like a spawning color male pygmy sunfish. Like whoever did it, did their research enough to put that in there. And then they they got like a cooked version where it's like been fried. Oh my gosh. Finger food. <laughs>